Lord willing, this is going to be a very busy week at Bobby Branch. Um, Saturday, I hope that you took the announcement that Brother Brandon made about the um, Autumn Street Fair to heart. This is a great opportunity for us to be in our community. You know, quite often we want visitors to come and visit with us, and we do have visitors almost at every service. But we need to be in the community letting the people know that we are here, let them know that we care. And if you can come and be a smiling face, I'd love to be able to see you there on Saturday. And uh, Lord willing, we can put a good face in front of our community for this congregation. And then next Sunday morning, it's not been mentioned yet, but Brother Michael Clark, uh, Brother B.J. Clark's son who spoke for us last year, at uh, the Bible Bowl and the Sunday morning worship. will also be back with us. He'll be preaching next Sunday morning. And he is an extremely talented young man. And I encourage you to be here to listen to him and also to be able to encourage him as he begins his work in serving the Lord. He will graduate in December from Memphis School of Preaching. And I know he'll begin to do a great work for the Lord. So I'm sure you have observed, as you looked on the screen, the three crosses. Several years ago, I remember sitting in a class with Brother Roy Deaver, and he discussed a plan for a sermon that he had come up with in the 1950s. And I used the points from that sermon on several occasions, and in fact, every time we get to go to the Bible lands, when we go to the garden tomb, I will rehearse those seven things. One Lord, two thieves, three crosses, four parts to his garments, five wounds, six hours, and seven sayings. That stuck in my mind. I don't think I could forget that if I wanted to. And uh, it's a valuable study. The other day I was reading a lesson from someone else and they made reference to the three crosses. I thought that would be a wonderful thing to go back and just pull one of those points out and to think about it maybe a little more in depth and particularly from Luke's account of the crucifixion of Christ. Because you see the cross of Christ is not one of but it's the most profound event in the world. You're saying, really? Oh, let me explain for just a minute. If you go to Galatians 6 and verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Christ, or cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I unto the world. There are three crosses in that one passage. There's first of all the cross of Christ. Second of all, there is the cross in which the world has been crucified to me. In other words, I don't live toward the world anymore. And he says, then I to the world. Because the world has looked at us and said to us, you are worthless, you are to be crucified. When I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
When you go out and a person is in the world and they don't believe in Christ and they don't believe in the gospel and you talk to them and you say, our Savior died on a cross. And they're saying, well, he's dead then. Oh no, he lives. But to those of us who are being saved, there is such great power in that cross. Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, save or accept Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can you imagine a preacher who comes in and his first greatest sermon is Jesus Christ crucified? The most profound event in the world. You can never meditate upon this great event too much. I know when the communion is passed on Sunday morning and we partake of that bread and we partake of that fruit of the vine, we remember the Lord's body, we remember His blood. But I think we need to think about it more than just then. Scripture provides us a vivid picture of that six hours on that Friday in which our Lord was crucified. Although six hours which began the third hour, which is approximately our 9 o'clock in the morning, and went to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Those six hours, those six hours of agony in which our Lord was there. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about, first of all, the cross of rejection. Here you have a hardened sinner. He doesn't care. Jesus is not important to him. The truth is not important He's a dead man on his way to torments. On the second cross, you see a man of repentance. He is a humbled sinner. He now recognizes who he is and he recognizes his fate. And then you see the cross of redemption. And there you see a holy Savior one who did not deserve to die, but died for our sins. Let's go to Luke 23. Let's go to verse 39. Uh, you can keep your Bibles open there. We're going to focus on this passage a little bit in depth. And Luke says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ... Save yourself and us. Now when you think about this man, I want to focus on a little bit about who he is and what he says and what he thinks. And the first thing I want to talk about is deeds. What do you know about this man? Luke uses the term criminal or it is translated in the older translations, a male factor. That doesn't mean a whole lot to those of us in 2016, but that's a word that's used. Some of the other older translations would call him an evildoer. And I made the point this morning as we were studying from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He said, wherein they defame you as evildoers. Same word that's found here. It's the word for criminal. Matthew tells us that he was guilty of robbery. Notice with me, Matthew 27, verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. You compare that with John 18 and verse 40. Now they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
Now, you can say, well, what's the difference between a thief and a robber? A thief is a person who sneaks into your house while you're gone and steals what you have trying to do so in secret and quiet. A robber is a person who would come and put a knife to your throat and say to you, you give me your valuables, give me your money, give me your jewelry and make a demand out of you. These men were not thieves, they were robbers. They were thugs. In fact, if you study the background of this word, it also described people who were insurrectionist. And of course, the robbery was tied with that. They would stir up a crowd. They would get people often going against the government, creating insurrection, so they could be able while then to rob them. And you will notice Barabbas. It's very possible that these two men on either side of Jesus were in cohorts with Barabbas. They could have been all arrested together. And since Barabbas was going to be released, he was also scheduled to be crucified. They could have all three been a part of the same group. The second thing that you will notice is his derision. He blasphemed or railed on our Lord. Listen to Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, You who destroy and build the temple in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. I can visualize people, you know, in our political climate that we have today, if you're a Democrat, you make fun of the Republicans. If you're a Republican, you make fun of the Democrats. And uh, if you read Facebook, they're both all crazy. I'm just telling the truth. And here are these people, they're looking up at Jesus and they're mocking him. They're deriding him. Oh, yeah. And these two robbers, but we're focusing on the worst of the two. He doesn't care what he says. He casts doubt. If you are the Son of God, does he believe he's the Son of God? No, this is being sarcastic. Where someone comes along and they, they try to tell you, oh boy, you are really smart. People don't believe that. If you're the son of God, take yourself off the cross and save us as well. He doesn't expect Jesus to take him off the cross. Now let me tell you what this man on this cross has. He has a death with no hope. He's in a pitiful condition. He has a hardened heart. He doesn't care what he says. He doesn't care whom he offends. Can you imagine a man blaspheming Jesus on their deathbed? Surely if there's any time a person would want to beg for forgiveness, it would be them. But no, he doesn't. 
In Romans 2 and verse 5, Paul writes, But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation at the righteous judgment of God. Oh, you do this, and what you are doing is you are just fanning the flames of hell that much hotter. Proverbs 29, verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Notice, he's rebuked. He's rebuked. But he doesn't care. Even when the other robber rebukes him, he doesn't appear to be moved or phased by it. Now, you know, the truth is there's many people like that today. In the world in which you and I live, we're just like that robber. There are practical atheists. And the reason why I use that term practical is because there are people who, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But they don't act like it. They act as if Jesus is not the Lord. They act as if they're not going to have to answer to him on the day of judgment when he comes back. And you say, how do you know that? Because they take his name in vain all the time. Or you just turn on your television. It doesn't matter if it's broadcast or cable or whatever else. The language is filthy. Not only is it filthy, but they take God's name and Jesus' name and they use them as swear words. And then they think that, okay, on the day of judgment it won't matter. If you believe in nothing, then you will live to do what you can get away with. This man had shown that's what he had lived, the way he had lived his life. Okay, I'm bigger, I'm meaner, I'm stronger than you, so I don't have a problem putting a knife to your throat and say, give me what you have. I don't mind robbing you. Let me urge you, if you think that you fall into that category, don't squander your opportunities. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he is near or while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. While you have the opportunity to do so. This man, the very last thing he did was leave this world unprepared, hating God, despising our Lord. Pitiful. The second cross, or judgment awaits for that man, Hebrews 9 and verse 27, is pointed into man wants to die, and after this a judgment. Now let's move to the second cross. This is a cross of repentance, and on it you see a humbled sinner. And the record of him is found in verses 40 through 42. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Let's look first of all at his admission and his assessment of the situation. Because, you know, while he's hanging there on the cross, he's got some time to think. He has the ability, and I know they outlived Jesus because when they came to Jesus, he was already dead that six hours. But they had to break the legs of the two robbers, so they've been there for six hours. There's been a lot of time for contemplation going on here. And he, as he addresses the other robber, says, basically, we're getting what we deserve. He was an honest sinner. You say, what do you mean by that? We live in a generation of denial. Or as one book calls it, we are a nation of victims. Oh, if a man goes out and kills somebody, it's not his fault. It's his mom and daddy's fault. Oh, well, no, it's not their fault. It's society who made this. We live in a world today that no one accepts responsibility to say, I did that and I'm guilty of it. This man said, you know what? I did the crime and now I'm going to have to pay the penalty for it. The truth is, is that when he first was put on the cross, he also mocked Jesus. If you go to Mark chapter 15, verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. I've got a question. What changed this man's mind? Perhaps at the very beginning... At least initially, both of them are railing on the Lord, but this man changed his tune. What possibly could it have been? Well, let me suggest to you that possibly he is amazed when he looks and sees the way Jesus responds to this. For instance, you remember what Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I want you to imagine Jesus is suspended there on the cross and all these accusations are being hurled against him, not only by these two robbers, but by all the people at the foot of the cross. Mocking him. What does Jesus say? Nothing. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't look at them and, and make some sort of a charge against them. Could it be that he saw grace in the eyes of Jesus? Luke 23, verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, for forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Isn't that amazing? Here's this man, he looks over and he recognizes that there's all kinds of accusations being leveled against him. And rather than cursing the crowd, he prays and he hears the prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That had to be impressive. 
There's a sign over Jesus' head. There's a crown of thorns on his head. Luke 23, verse 38, and an inscription also written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. They knew that Jesus had evidently made a claim to be the king. Remember John 18, Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Therefore, my kingdom is not from here. Okay, you you look and you see the sign and you see the crown of thorns. Could this man truly be the Son of God? Oh, I could go on and I could speculate about several other possibilities. What about the sun not shining from the sixth hour to the ninth hour? But this robber makes an appeal to the Lord. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, specific term. He acknowledges Jesus as the master over him. In that sense, he's putting Jesus on the throne. He's not really putting him there. Jesus was already there. He's just simply recognizing that. Remember me. There's a personal sense in which he is asking Jesus to be his Savior. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees Jesus now as the king over his kingdom. Was he perhaps present when Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world? Possibly, as they were being examined. This man knows that Jesus is something more than just an ordinary man. So how do you know that? Here's a dying man asking another dying man for a future help. Here you are, you're dying. You look at this man next to you, he's dying. Will you help me? And you say, well, how can I help you? This is it. No, this man had faith that Jesus had a kingdom. He had the ability to save him. He had a future in his hands. He got three things right. Number one, he was honest about his own sins. One of the hardest things I have found in the years that I've been preaching is to get people to recognize their sins. We don't want to be specific. We really don't want to admit it. Matthew 9 and verse 13, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Every one of us. Luke 18, verse 13. Jesus talked about the man who went down to his house justified. He's the man who beat himself on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Oh, listen to 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Acknowledgement of His sin. The second thing that He got right, He was convinced that Jesus was Lord. John 8 and verse 24, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Romans 10, 9 and 10 speaks about that confession. And then number three, He was willing to call upon Jesus as the only one who could provide Him eternal life. Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes into the Father except through me. That robber recognized that. Okay, now very quickly, let's look at the cross of redemption and see a holy Savior. Let's look at verse 43. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now if I look at this cross of Christ, you obviously know that I could spend a lot of time talking about all the various aspects of it. But I want to look first of all at his grief. There was a a grief with regards to the physical pain and suffering. When Jesus was cut, when Jesus was beaten... His physical body hurt just like yours or mine. There was a brutal, agonizing treatment. He had already been beaten in such a fashion that his back likely would have been open. He has carried his cross to the point where he has fallen under its weight. He's likely lost blood. He's dehydrated. And here he is now nailed to a cross. There's been a time or two when I have stepped on a nail, especially as a child when we walked barefooted. And I'm going to tell you, that hurts. I can't imagine someone driving an old hand-fashioned nail that's not smooth and tear the flesh. But in addition to that physical pain was the mental anguish. I want you to imagine you have been nailed to a cross and here you are, you're dying and you look out and who do you want to see? You want to see your family and those who care about you. Where are the apostles? Where's his closest friends? They've left him. You look out and you say, well, my mother, my father's not even here. My wife, my children, they're not even here. Jesus looks out and there's his mother and some women, but for the most part, they've forsaken him. And then the very sad words of Matthew 27 and verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, alama sabachthani, that is, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had to let Jesus suffer in pain with no relief. Did the Lord feel abandonment? Absolutely he did. You see his grief, but you also see his grace. Hebrews 2.9 says that by the grace of God, he tasted of death for every man. Tasted of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, him who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did this because he loved us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 talks about God commending his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't just that he died, though. It's that his blood was shed. The precious blood of Christ. Matthew 26 and verse 28, in establishing the Lord's Supper, he said, For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Why was it there? Hebrews 9, 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, and having obtained eternal redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Three crosses. A cross of rejection, a cross of repentance, and a cross of redemption. What about your cross? Oh, my cross? Oh, yeah. Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 24 of chapter 5, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. i got another question. Are you putting Christ back on the cross? You say, what do you mean by that? He's already been put on the cross. He's already died. Oh, the Hebrew writer makes a big point about this. Hebrews 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to the repentance Now listen carefully. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. 
Oh, do you recognize that when you and I go out in our world and we have said no longer are we following the Lord, no longer are we going to do what He wants us to do, we have rejected Him, we're crucifying Him all over again. The bottom line is He died for you, will you live for Him? We're going to sing this invitation song. If you are one of God's children and you've strayed into the world, don't die in rejection. Don't die hating the Lord, hardened in your sin. Let the Word of God prick your heart. Let it change your life. Let's pray with you tonight. And if you have never yet said, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want to make Him the Savior of my soul. You come in faith, repenting of your sins. Confess that faith and then be baptized. Would you come while we stand and sing?